Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. I'm so thankful that he's given me this awesome message this week for us all. I'm so thankful that uh, God has brought us all here today. And what a beautiful day. McKinney, Texas, out of my home in McKinney, Texas. I want to welcome everybody come from SoundCloud and all over the world. Uh, praise God. And thank you for joining us today. I consider you as my family and my home sitting here. I want to welcome you, Gospel Saving Church as well, too. Uh, anyway, if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, we're going to be in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30, but we'll get to that after my thoughts from last week, and we pray to open our service. So if you guys want to join me, please. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here, Lord. Thank you so much for uh, all that you did this week to make this message work, work Lord God. I just thank you so much that, uh, <laughs> Lord, it was just last minute. Everything is sometimes last minute with me, and, and that's how it works, and, and I just didn't even know you were going to do all that you did this week until, like, Thursday, Lord, or Friday. And so, Lord, I'm just such in awe that you pulled it all together, Lord, and gave me the permission to do all this, Lord, and and, uh, you made it all work. You said, this is what you want me to do, and we're going to do it, Lord. So I just pray that the the special message today would speak to the hearts of all the people that will listen all over the world, and those in my home too, Lord, and that you would show your truth and your faithfulness, Lord God, and, and just how awesome you are, Lord, and the things that you've made happen. Lord, I, and I'm just so such an awe, Lord. So I just pray that you communicate through me and um, my brother David Brickner, Lord, and I just pray that you communicate through us, Lord, the truth of who Jesus Christ is and, and what you and what you said for you know through him or through him that happened thousands of years ago. Lord, please bless this message and touch our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name, Lord. Amen. Again, our Chapter and verses this week are Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30, but we'll read it after my thoughts from last week's message. The Savior exposes his betrayer. Thinking about the point I made last week where Jesus could have told all the disciples who the betrayer was, Judas, but then he didn't. He stopped because he knew that if he would have told them who his betrayer was, then other disciples probably would have stopped Judas from betraying Jesus, and then Jesus would have not gone to the cross. That's how easy it would have been. Think about it. All he had to do was tell the 11, hey, my, my betrayer is Judas. Now, the other 11 loved him a lot. They weren't going to allow Jewis, Judas to go betray Jesus. So Jesus just alluded to who it was, but he never came right out and said it. Well, that would have been real easy for Jesus to do that. Real easy. And in fact, if you think about it through the life of Christ, through the three and a half years that he had his ministry, it would have been real easy for him to do a lot of things in order to escape the cross. If he would have told the disciples, he would have escaped the cross. If he would have, let's say, in the beginning of his ministry when he was driven into the wilderness and Satan, Satan tempted him for, uh, for 30 days or 40 days, he could have just bowed down to Satan and give his life to Satan. So, you know, everything, hey, I can, I can rule the world now. I don't have to wait until the end. I could rule the world now. He could have done that, but again, he wouldn't have been able to die for the sins of the world and he wouldn't have been able to go to the cross. He could have just simply at one point quit the ministry. He could have been like Jonah. He could have just known what God wanted him to do and he could have just ran. He didn't have to do it at all, but he stayed. He could have joined the religious leaders. He could have said, you know what? I'm not the son of God. Forget it. I'm not. Just let's stop arguing. Let's, let's hold the religion together. Let's do this together. And I'll just you know, follow you guys. And you guys can be the leaders. And I'll just be part of Judaism. And he could have done all these things to escape the cross. But he didn't. He went to the cross no matter 
even though it was hard, and even though the Bible says that he didn't really want to do it. The Bible says that he prayed to God, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to go. It was painful. The sin that was laid upon him from the people of the world separated him and God. He didn't want to really go to the cross. Yet, he went to the cross, even though he simply could have given up and just walked away and not told him and not done what God told him to do. Main point, though, is he didn't give up and he didn't quit. And why? Because, we've already talked about this many times, the fate of you and me and all humanity was on his mind. And his love for us was too strong. His love for you and me and us and and knowing us and us knowing him was too strong. You see, if he would have given up and not gone to the cross, all mankind would have been doomed to a fiery end with no hope to escape. We all would have had no hope The old covenant was passing away. Nobody could keep the old covenant. People had made it all the law. So there was no remnant. There was no real salvation in Jesus' day. It had pretty escaped people. And so if he would have not gone to the cross, salvation would have gone away. Salvation would have gone away from humanity. And we would have all been lost. But because of his undying and endearing love for you and me and all humanity... He didn't give up. He went to that beautiful yet terrible cross. Beautiful to the sinner because of what Christ did for us, but terrible for him because he lost his life on it. You could say, in fact, that his love drove him to the cross. His love for you and me drove him to the cross because Jesus had real love for people. And real love doesn't just quit no matter how hard times get. Real love doesn't quit no matter how hard the road becomes. Paul describes this real love for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And he says, love suffers long and is kind. Think about that. Real love, because this describes Christ's love, his real love for us. Paul says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, oh, look at me, look at how great I am. That's not real love. Love does not behave rudely. Love is humble. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Jesus was real love. He thought no evil of anybody. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices, love does, in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures That word endure there endures all things. Love never fails. And Jesus' love for you and me and all humanity never fails ever. Love made Christ keep going to the cross even when he wanted to quit because the road was too hard. Well, that was God's side now. Now Christians, our side, from God to all his children out there, God is saying to all of us today, he's looking for that same love towards him from us. He wants us to love him in that same way. So I ask you today, do you love God? Do you love Christ? And do you love his family on earth? If you do, then God wants you to keep going and he wants you to keep pushing on and keep showing him love and keep doing whatever it is that he's called you to do, whatever that may be. He wants you to keep going 
for him, just like he kept going for us to the cross. And the Bible says that he's watching us. He's watching us to see if we'll finish the race for him until the end. Or our end comes. We don't know which one's going to be first. He says he wants to see if we're going to continue to be faithful to him in his calling or callings on our lives. And whatever ministry or ministries he's called us to, no matter how hard our paths may get. So if you love God in Christ today and you say you do, I exhort you, please, follow him and his calling on your lives no matter how hard it is to do so, because he gave you that example and the life that he lived and the cross that he went to for you. And I'm speaking to you as much as I'm speaking to myself today. Because whether anybody knows it or not, God's callings on my life have been extremely hard for me too. God's called me to some pretty difficult things to do, and yet I struggle with them often. And yet when I look at the passage of Scripture where Christ went to the cross like he did, I'm in awe that he loved me so much and that he kept going like he did for me. And he had me and you on his mind, and that's what kept going. That's what made him keep going. And yet for me, that's the same thing that makes me keep going. His love for me, what the, his sacrifice for me. He said, Ed, I want you to do this. I said, okay, Lord, but then I, you know, but then a road gets tough and I think about quitting. And then, but, oh, but Lord, you love me and you kept going for me. And so I keep going because Christ kept going. Anyway, Christians, I exhort you, love God and follow the example Christ gave you by going to the cross, even though he could have escaped it. Would have been real easy. Christ could have really escaped the cross. And same is true for every one of us that's following God. If you follow God today and God's given you something to do, it's real easy for you to just quit and give up and stop doing what God told you to do. Yet, God wants you and I want you and God wants me and to endure and endure, and endure some more in whatever it is that God has called us to do and endure in our faith in Him. He never said that the path He put us on would be easy, but He said, follow me, and I will be with you through whatever you go through. So keep that in your mind, and endure, endure, and keep going. Praise be to God. All right, so let's jump into our message for this week. Our title for this message Uh, is Christ in the Passover. Our section of scripture will be Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. Again, title, Christ in the Passover. So last week we read of Jesus and the disciples eating the Passover meal together in the upper room of some strange guy's house, right? Jesus just said, go into the town and you'll meet a guy and you'll say, hey, I'm going to hold the Passover in your house. And so the guy said, yes. And so that's just it. And That was the way it was. And so we don't know the guy's name. I'm sure God knows his name, but we don't know his name. And of course, while they ate the Passover, Jesus identifies his betrayer, like we talked about already, but with not enough information so that the other 11 would know and then stop him from, you know, going and betraying Jesus. Well, today we open up this message with Jesus and his faithful remaining 11 continuing to eat the Passover meal. Because guess what? Like we talked about in John 13, Judas has gone away by now. Now, that's how we open up in our section of scripture. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. And so we have an idea of what God is saying to us here. We open up and we, and we see here verse 26. And as they were eating, see they're still eating. Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
Then he took the cup, and then Luke tells us after supper, that's a cup after supper, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of this vine, or he says in Luke, this cup of this vine, from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out, to the Mount of Olives. So, as I prayed about what God wanted me to do with this message, with our five verses of Scripture today, I heard him tell me that he wanted me to focus on the details of the Passover. Yes, the details of the Passover. Many maybe that I'm speaking to right now maybe not even know what the Passover is and what it all entails, but he told me to speak on the details of the Passover. He told me that beginning of the week, like Monday, Tuesday, when I started setting my sermon. And then he wanted, he told me a little bit right in all with that, he wanted me to share the details of how Jesus Christ is represented in, or you could say the Passover speaks of Christ. He wants me to share with you how the Passover speaks of, or how Christ Jesus is represented in the Passover, or how it spoke of him. And yes, you heard me right. In case you don't know, the Passover was instituted about 3,000 years before Christ Jesus ever lived. Yet, the Passover speaks of Jesus Christ, and actually Jesus Christ is represented in the Passover meal of the Jews. And those are the details that we're going to focus on today. And the next thing God told me for this message today, he wanted me to go check out a video on the Passover. And you see, I'm pretty versed in the Bible. But when it comes to Jewish traditions, and the Passover meal is a lot of Jewish traditions, I'm not 100% real good. So I was going to have to do some research to kind of brush up on this Passover meal and all the different details. And there's all kinds of Hebrew words in there. And I don't know Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. And so I was going to have to watch this. I was got to put on my heart to watch this video of a Passover, how what a Passover looks like and how, what they do in this Passover and so on and so forth because I wasn't real sure about you know the Passover and all the details to it. So I went as God told me to do, but later in the week, this is probably like Wednesday or Thursday, and I searched on YouTube and I found one that was done by a ministry called Jews for Jesus. Uh, now Jews for Jesus is, was, was founded uh, by a man many years ago that uh, and what he did was he was Jewish and he got saved. He came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of the Jews. Many Jews today don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And yet this man, Moise Rosen, did believe that Jesus was the Messiah and he found Christ as the Messiah in Scripture. So he founded this ministry, which is an outreach. Basically, it's an all over the world outreach. They go to Jerusalem, they go to New York, they go to California, they go all over the world and they minister to Jewish people and they try to show them through the Scriptures, through not the New Testament, well, that New Testament too, but mainly the Old Testament where, where the Bible speaks of Christ, where the Bible speaks of, you know, what how Jesus is in the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, Okay. And so that's a little bit about Jews for Jesus. So I watched this video about Jews for Jesus. Now, initially, all I was going to do was just watch this video, take the information that I learned, like I always do when I do my research, come back to you guys, and then just, you know, kind of give it to you with my flair, you know, with my personality, because every speaker, every person has a different personality, different flair. And that's all I was initially going to do, as usual. But then as I watched the video... I realized that because of all the Jewish history and the culture that's involved with the practice of the Passover 
and all the ways in which Christ is represented in it, the Lord was basically kind of telling me, Ed, I want you to get out of the way, and I want you to let the experts explain, the experts being the Jewish people, because I'm not Jewish. Jew and Gentile are all the same in the Bible now, that Christ came, that's what the Bible says, but yet I'm not Jewish, and I don't have a Jewish heritage, so I don't understand, and I don't get get all that Jewish culture and all that Jewish tradition. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm actually going to get out of the way, and let a man by the name of David Brickner, who is the executive director of Jews for Jesus, teach you about the Passover and Christ in it. And in case you're wondering, and because I have, I, I won't do anything to break the law, I actually called Jews for Jesus this week and talked to a man named Steve, and he gave me permission to allow me and allow us to watch this video and to be able to speak on this video because, of course, it's not mine, and I wanted to get permission of it. And, of course, they're a major ministry, and they didn't have to give me permission to do this, yet God told me to do it, and I called, being obedient to God, and he moved the Red Sea open again for me, and they said, yeah, sure, yeah, you can use it as long as you're not going to sell it. And of course, I, I don't sell any, anything I use in my sermons. So... Here's how we're going to do our service today. Here at my home, we're going to watch this video, this YouTube video. And after it's all over, I'm going to close with a short recap, highlighting some powerful points about it, and then just pray to finish. Now, if you're listening online, I'm going to show up here in a few moments and just play the audio of the YouTube video so you can hear it also. Then after it's done, after David's done describing all these things to you and giving this powerful presentation of the Passover, I'm going to close with a short recap, highlighting some powerful points about it, and pray to finish, same as in my house. And then we're going to kind of come together, we're going to finish all together. Now, FYI, if you're listening online, or you in my home, if you're interested in this afterwards and you want to see, see it afterwards, just, just Google Jews for Jesus. Uh, Christ in the Passover, or Christ in the Passover, Jews for Jesus. But if you want and you're listening online and you don't want to have to do all that, you can go to our website, gospelsavingchurch.com, and it's going to be under my sermons. If you go to sermons and you go to Christ in the Passover, which is the title of our sermon today, it actually be you'll actually be able to watch the YouTube video that we're going to watch in our home on the, on my uh, webpage, or on, the, on the website for Gospel Saving Church, FYI. So, without further ado... Here is Jews for Jesus' very own David Brickner and his presentation of Christ and the Passover, and I will be back. Now, please, as I go, respect David and his words like you would respect me. Please listen carefully, because he's got some very powerful information, and he brings it forth because he grew up Jewish. He's a Jew by heritage, and he knows all the cultures, and he's been celebrating it for probably 30 or 40 years. So he, he knows exactly what he's talking about, and he's ver very versed in what's, what he's going to tell you. So listen along and give him the same respect you'd give me and enjoy his presentation. And I'll be back in a little bit. And God bless you. And here we go. More than 3,000 years ago, God commanded the Jewish people to celebrate the Passover. Jesus himself celebrated this holiday every year. And today, millions of Jewish people around the world gather each spring for a Passover meal. Now, we Jews for Jesus want to invite you to experience this ancient feast through this presentation of Christ in the Passover. It's the next best thing to having you at our home for the holiday. This video features David Brickner, Executive Director of Jews for Jesus. To enhance your understanding and enjoyment of this program, we've also included Scenes of some of our family during Passover, informational graphics, music, and artwork. And now, let's join the audience as David Brickner explains the Christian significance of the ancient Jewish festival, 
of Passover. It was all part of God's plan from the beginning to break down that middle wall of partition, dividing Jews and Gentiles, and to make us one together in the body of Christ. So we're one this morning in Him. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. But you know, you know, because of that, you share with me in a rich heritage, the heritage of the people of Israel and all that God did to reveal Himself through the fathers and through the prophets and through the festivals of Israel. This now becomes your heritage in Messiah. And this morning, we're going to look more closely at one aspect of that in the story of the Passover. The Passover is the account of God's redemption of the nation of Israel from bondage, from slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. But this morning, as we look more closely at that ancient festival of redemption, you're going to see that God, in bringing Israel out of bondage, wove into the very fabric of that story a picture of a far greater redemption of all the world from the Egypt of sin through our Passover lamb, who is Jesus the Messiah. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to that first Passover story, which you'll find in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 5 through 8 and 11 through 15. Now, if you remember at this time, Israel was in bondage. We were enslaved in Egypt, and God promised he was going to redeem us. So he raised up Moses to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh wasn't exactly willing to listen to Moses. And so God had to convince Pharaoh to listen. And God can be very convincing about these things. And he convinced Pharaoh by sending a series of plagues upon the land of Egypt. You remember the story. There were ten plagues in all. Now, the Bible tells us that the Jewish people at this time were living in a section of Egypt called Goshen. And they were exempt from the first nine of those ten plagues. For example, the Bible tells us when darkness fell across the land of Egypt as a plague from the Lord, there was nevertheless light in Goshen where the Israelites were dwelling. Or when God smote the cattle of the Egyptians with plague, the cattle of the Israelites were spared. And yet Israel was not automatically exempt from the tenth plague, the worst plague, the death of the firstborn. But in order that that plague should not fall upon them, God commanded the children of Israel to take a yearling lamb for each family. And that's where we pick up the story. Exodus 12 and verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. And you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats and keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Verse 11. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a sign upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. 
And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses, for whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. That, then, is the historical institution of the Passover. We know that the first Passover, then, was celebrated on the night of the tenth plague way back in the land of Egypt. But as God commanded here in Exodus 12, Israel was to continue to celebrate the Passover as a lasting ordinance. And so, throughout our history, as we observe this great festival, there were various symbols and traditions that were added to the observance to remind us of that first Passover back in the land of Egypt. So that by the time Jesus and the disciples were celebrating the Passover, most of the items that you see on the table before you today were already incorporated into that Passover observance. And there's a tremendous amount of preparation that goes into the celebration of the Passover. You might remember in the Gospels that Jesus even sent Peter and John ahead of him into the city of Jerusalem, saying, go, prepare the Passover that we may eat. And this preparation involves many things, but specifically what God commanded the children of Israel to do back in the land of Egypt, we were to cleanse our houses of all leaven, anything with yeast in it. Which, of course, means that today all your Wonder Bread, all your Hostess Twinkies have to go. (laughs) But because Passover comes during the springtime, this has become a time for a, a general house cleaning. And in the Orthodox Jewish home, Mom begins weeks in advance of Passover cleaning. Everything from floor to ceiling is cleaned, and there's even a whole different set of dishes put out for the Passover. But we have a problem. And the problem is that although it is the mother who does the cleaning of the house, the rabbis tell us it is only the man who can certify that the house has been properly cleaned. You can see what kind of a problem we have. (laughs) The rabbis knew that the men would never get the job done right by themselves, but they also wanted to ensure peace and harmony in the home at the Passover. So they got together and they thought about this problem thought about it, and they came up with a solution, which in Hebrew we call bedikat chametz, or the searching out of the leaven. And here's how it works. The night before Passover, mom, already having cleaned the house of all leaven, will take a little bit that's left over, maybe crumbs from the toast that they had for breakfast that morning, something with yeast in it, and she'll take it and hide it somewhere in the house. Now, the father coming home from work that evening will take in his hand a feather, a wooden spoon, and a napkin. And he'll go on a GI inspection to search out the leaven, looking high and and looking low for those crumbs. Now, if his wife has been good enough to him, she's hit it in the same place she hit it last year and the year before that. So that when he finally finds those crumbs, he takes the feather and with a steady hand, he scrapes them into the spoon, wraps them up in the napkin. And then in ancient times and still in Israel, the father marches off to the local synagogue where there's a bonfire burning in the courtyard. He takes the package, tosses it into the bonfire, and so declares his house now properly cleaned. (laughs) And in... It's an ingenious way for the men to get out of the house cleaning, right? (laughs) 
But you know something? The Apostle Paul makes a very specific analogy to this custom of Bedikat Chametz, the searching out of the leaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and beginning with verse 6, Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so we see from that passage that leaven is not just something with yeast in it. In the Bible, leaven is a symbol for sin. And Paul points out that just as leaven is a symbol for sin, so then this unleavened bread, the matzah which we eat at the Passover, this then is a symbol of purity and righteousness before God. Now, ladies, I I know you must be thinking that it doesn't seem quite fair that you are the ones that have to do all the hard work cleaning house and the man gets all the ceremonial glory by declaring it clean. Well, ladies, you have your very own bit of ceremonial glory, which is called the brachut haner, the lighting of the festival candles. And this actually ushers in the celebration of the Passover. At this time, the mom will take this book, which we call Haggadah. Haggadah is a Hebrew word. It means the story or the telling. And within this beautifully bound and and beautifully illustrated book, you have all of the story and the ceremony and the prayers associated with the observance of Passover. So mom takes the Haggadah and she reads a special prayer from it as she lights the Passover candles. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by thy commandments and commanded us to light the lights of Passover. Now I think it's appropriate that it is the woman rather than the man who lights the candles and so brings light to the festival table. Because in the same way, it was not through a man, but rather through a woman and the will of God that the light of the world came into the world. As the prophet Isaiah declared, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of my people Israel. And at this time, our Passover celebration can begin. Passover is observed largely in the home, around the family dinner table. And you'll notice pillows on the chairs at the dinner table. And this is simply because... In the first story of Passover, as we read in Exodus 12, God commanded the children of Israel to eat standing, loins girded, shoes on our feet, and staves in our hands. We had to be ready to take off at a moment's notice. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, only free people could recline at the meal. Slaves always had to stand. Once we were slaves, now we are free. And so to symbolize that freedom, we recline on pillows. The father is especially appointed to lead his family in worship, and so he wears this special ceremonial garment called a kittle, which is the same garment worn by the priest in the temple when he ministered there. Of course, the father is high priest of his home, and he also wears this mitre, which symbolizes a crown from the ancient Near East. He is priest of his family and king of his castle. Appropriately attired, he leads his family in worship. 
And the Passover is not only a time for mothers and for fathers, it's especially a time for the children. And the kids are invited to participate in a number of different ways, but most significantly through the chanting of the Manishtana, or four questions which are asked of the father. And the father answers the child and then explains through that the meaning of the Passover for his family. Now, being the boy, the youngest boy in my family growing up in Boston, Massachusetts, it was always my honor to pronounce these questions. And here's what the first couple sound like. Which means, why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat leavened bread, but tonight we eat only unleavened bread. And after chanting all four questions, the father then answers the child and so leads his family in worship at the Passover. Now, not only are there four questions for Passover, there are also four cups. Actually, each of us has one cup as we sit at the table, but you see, we drink from that cup four different times throughout the Passover. It kind of serves as an outline for the celebration. And each time we drink from the cup, it has a different name and symbolism given to it. And the first cup is called Kiddush, which means sanctification, because with this cup, we sanctify all that follows in our Passover observance. Now, there's a traditional Hebrew prayer we say over this cup. And certainly, our Lord Jesus said that prayer. And then he said something afterward which directly relates to that Hebrew prayer. Baruch HaTadonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Prihagafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit, of the vine. And then Jesus said, It is with great desire that I have desired to eat this Passover with you, but I tell you truly, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus spoke of a new or perhaps a fulfilled Passover in the kingdom, and with this cup he sanctified all that was to follow in his own special Passover there in the upper room. Everything in Passover is now blessed and sanctified, and everything has a particular order to it as well. Seder is the Hebrew word for order. The Passover is referred to as a Seder meal, and this is a Seder plate. And despite its appearance, it's not for deviled eggs. You notice the six compartments on the Seder plate? Well, they correspond to the six different items displayed down through here. And a little bit of each of these items is placed on the Seder plate. And the first that we have is carpus, which is Hebrew for greens. And the rabbis tell us that the greens represent life. And we will take some salt water, which represents the tears of life. And we dip the greens into the salt water. And so we are reminded that during our slavery in Egypt, our lives were immersed in tears. For truly, a life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. But we also remember that God redeemed us with a mighty and outstretched arm. He brought us out of bondage through the Red Sea and into freedom. And so by His mercy and grace, our lives have been drawn from tears. We eat the greens together now to remind us that we can now partake of life redeemed from tears 
by the mercy and grace of Almighty God. The next item on the Seder plate, horseradish. We call it Jewish Dristan. (laughs) Guaranteed to unclog the sinus passages in the back of your head. (laughs) Now the horseradish, or maror as we say in Hebrew, is the bitter herb that we read about in Exodus 12. And what we do is we take some of this bitter herb, the unleavened bread with it, and we take the bread, dipping it into the maror. We get about a teaspoon of it on there like this, and then... I'm not going to do it. (laughs) But you know what happens when you eat this much horseradish? You begin to cry. You have very little choice in the matter. It's a battle between the horseradish and your sinuses, and the horseradish always wins. But you see, the tears that we then shed, they become a graphic reminder to us of the tears our forefathers shed during their slavery in Egypt. And you might remember when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he had said to them, One of you is going to betray me. And the disciples got all upset. They said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And Jesus said, He who dips in the sop with me that night, every one will betray me. Well, the interesting thing is that every one of the disciples would have dipped in the sop with Jesus that night. No wonder they were so upset. But then later we find our Lord himself taking the bread and dipping it himself into the sop and handing it to Judas Iscariot. He said to him, what you must do, go and do quickly. And the Bible tells us that when Judas took the bread with the sop, Satan entered into him and he went out into the night. Maror is bitterness and tears. The next item on the Seder plate is called Charoseth. Can you all say that? Charoseth. Not bad, but you got to get that cha in there, you know? That's right. That's right. Just don't look at your neighbor when you say it. <laughs> now, charoseth is a sweet mixture of chopped apples. It has nuts and honey, raisins and cinnamon. It's delicious, but it represents the mortar that we used to make bricks for Pharaoh during our slavery in Egypt. So you might ask the rabbi, well, now wait a minute, rabbi. If, if haroseth represents mortar for bricks, which was bitterness and toil to our people, why then is it so sweet? Ah, the rabbi will say, because you see, even the bitterest of our toils grew sweet when we knew that our redemption drew near. And what we do is we take some of the unleavened bread, the matzah, we dip it in, this time maybe getting a double portion of the haroseth, And what we find is that as we eat this mixture, that bitter taste that was left in our mouths from the horseradish just disappears in the sweetness of the charoset. And this teaches us that even the bitterest things that we have to face in this world can be sweetened by the promise of God's redemption. Now this item is called hazeret. And it is the bitter root itself, the horseradish root, which, of course, we use to grind up to make the maror. And this sits on the Seder plate to remind us of the fact that the very root of life itself can often be bitter, as certainly our ancestors experienced during their slavery in Egypt. And this is called chagiga. Now, as you can see, chagiga is a brown egg that has been hard-boiled. 
But Hagiga was also the name given to the sacrifice made in the temple at the Passover. So then this egg represents that sacrifice. And we peel the egg and we slice it. But before we eat that slice, we dip it into the salt water, which represents tears. Why? Because we are mourning the fact that this is a memorial to a sacrifice that is no longer. The sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, which was central to the Passover observance, but which only could occur in the appointed place, the tabernacle, and then later the temple in Jerusalem. But you see, in 70 AD, Titus and his Roman legions marched into Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. And from that day until this present, there has no longer been sacrifice in Judaism. And because of that, my people at the Passover mourn the loss. In fact, because of this, the rabbis tell us we can no longer even eat lamb as the main course of the Passover meal. And so this last item, the zeroah, the shank bone of the lamb, rests on the Seder plate to remind us of those lambs that were so central to that first Passover back in the land of Egypt, but now are sadly absent. And we read about those lambs in Exodus 12. God commanded the children of Israel to take a yearling male lamb without spot, without blemish, without any broken bone. We were to take that lamb and to sacrifice it. Now this reminds me of another perfect paschal lamb who contrary to Roman custom did not have his legs broken when he hung on the cross. And so did Christ fulfill messianic prophecy. Now we come to the second cup, which is called the cup of plagues. We don't drink from this cup right away, but rather we dip our finger in the cup and drop a drop on the plate in front of us, one for each of the plagues God visited on the land of Egypt. A full cup is a symbol of fullness of joy, so we want to symbolically lessen our joy as we remember the suffering of the Egyptians. The blood. Hail. Locusts. Frogs, lice, flies, pestilence, boils, darkness, slaying of the firstborn. Nine times Pharaoh hardened his heart, and each time God sent a plague upon the land of Egypt. But the tenth plague was the worst of all, the death of of the firstborn. Now, God told the children of Israel to take the blood of that sacrificed lamb, to put it in a basin, and to go outside of their homes and apply that blood to the doorposts of their houses, putting it first on the top lintel and then on the two side posts. The blood of the lamb on the top lintel and the two side posts. And some have remarked, that this may have indeed made the sign of a cross with the blood of the lamb on that doorpost. That night death flew through the land of Egypt. There was weeping and wailing as never before till Pharaoh cried out, let them go, let them go or I'll die. But everywhere that the blood of the lamb was on the top lintel and the two side posts, death passed over that house. And so redemption came that night to the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. Now, because I believe in Jesus as my Lamb and my Messiah, 
And because I have by faith applied the blood of his sacrifice to the doorpost of my heart, when death comes to visit me, death is going to pass over me also because I have eternal life. Praise God for that. Hallelujah. Now, this is called a matzotash, a matzotash. You already know that matzah is the unleavened bread we eat at the Passover, and tosh just means bag. So this is a bag for unleavened bread. In fact, there are three pieces of unleavened bread inside this matzotash, and each piece is in its own section or its own compartment. And the rabbis tell us that the matzotash represents a unity. Three pieces of bread, one bag, three in one. And yet there is a great deal of disagreement among the rabbis as to which unity this matzotash represents. One rabbi says that the matzotash represents the unity of the patriarchs. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another rabbi says, no, the matzotash represents the unity of worship in Israel, represented by the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel. And so on go the explanations. Well, I believe the matzotash represents a unity also. But I believe that the matzotash represents the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's why. During a particular time of the Passover, we will reach into the second or middle compartment of the matzotash. Now you can ask the rabbi, Rabbi, why do we take the second piece and leave the first and third pieces untouched? And the answer is, we don't know. We take this matzah out, which we call the bread of affliction. And there are three things you need to notice about this. First of all, this is a whole loaf of bread. Yet look at it. It's flat like a cracker. And that's because it's completely unleavened. There's no yeast in it whatsoever. In fact, we're so concerned this bread be unleavened that we roll it out. And before we bake it, we quickly pierce the bread. And then we bake it on a high, in a high temperature on a rack in that oven, and you see those brown stripes that are baked onto the bread. So all matzah is unleavened, striped, and pierced. Are you with me? We take this second piece from the middle compartment of the matzah tash, and we break it in half. And we take this broken piece, and we wrap it in a linen cloth or in a linen bag... And it is now called the afikomen. Afikomen is a word meaning it comes later. And that's exactly what happens with this bread. We carry it outside of the room of celebration to be hid for a time. Buried, if you will. And this is such an important part of the celebration that the entire meal cannot be completed without that second piece. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But I'm curious, how many of you have been to a Passover before? Good, many of you. And for those of you who've never been, let me encourage you, if you have the opportunity, go. But let me also warn you, if you're going to a Passover, eat lightly that day or not at all because you are really in for a meal. I want to assure you, Passover is much more than parsley and horseradish. (laughs) We eat and we eat, but unfortunately, that's the part of the Passover I forgot to bring with me here this morning. (laughs) Towards the end of the meal, the head of the house will say to all the children, go and search for the afikomen. And the kids didn't necessarily see where it was hidden, so they have a great time looking for that piece. And the child who finds it 
brings it back to the head of the house and receives a reward for finding that second piece. The head of the house then stands and continues this ancient ceremony of the matzotash and the afikoman by unwrapping this special bread from the linen cloth. He takes it out and begins to break off small pieces for everyone seated at the table. Everyone now receives a piece of this bread. Does this remind you of anything? See, brothers and sisters, if the matzotash represents the unity of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why then is the middle portion broken, buried, and brought back? If the matzotash represents the unity of worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people, why is the middle portion broken, buried, and brought back? But if the matzotash represents the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we know why. It's because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was broken in death, wrapped in a linen cloth, buried in the tomb, and then brought back, resurrected by the power of God, conquering sin and death. So then it is no wonder. Hallelujah. It it is no wonder that Jesus took this bread and broke it and gave to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see the picture? God knew it in advance. And then our Lord took the cup. Now you know we take the cup four times during the Passover. But you see, the New Testament tells us that Jesus took the cup after they had supped, after the meal of the Passover. So we have the first two cups, then comes the meal, and the cup that comes directly after the meal is the third cup. And the third cup is called the cup of blessing and redemption. The cup of blessing which we bless, the cup of redemption looking back to the redemption God brought our forefathers from Egypt and looking forward to that redemption when Messiah comes. And Jesus there in that upper room with his disciples raised the third cup, the cup after supper, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. Now, what new covenant was he speaking of? The one that was promised by Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. You see, that was the problem with that first covenant. It became a broken covenant. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and on their hearts I will write it. That first covenant was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant was to be written on the tablet of our hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their sin and remember their iniquity no more. 
Oh, this then was the ultimate condition upon which the new covenant rested. For no longer would sin be atoned for through daily offerings of animals in the temple, but once and for all would God deal with this most difficult of human predicaments. And now we find Jesus there in that upper room with his disciples, taking the cup, taking the bread, taking the cup after supper and saying, that which you've been waiting for, that which was promised, that new covenant has now come in my blood. Imagine how the disciples must have felt after having celebrated this Passover year after year after year and then one day in that upper room in Jerusalem seeing its very fulfillment. To imagine that God in redeeming ancient Israel from bondage in Egypt wove into that very fabric of the story a great picture, the greatest picture of all of the redemption of the world from the Egypt of sin through the Passover lamb who is Jesus the Messiah. And of that redemption you and I partake today if we know Christ is our Savior, if we have by faith applied the blood of his sacrifice to the doorpost of our hearts. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Hallelujah. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of the lamb of God. And you know the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What other response is fitting but for us to give thanks and praise to say so? Hallelujah. And that's exactly how Passover concludes. After having the climax of the bread and the cup after supper, we have a say-so celebration where we sing hymns of praise from the Jewish National Hymn Book. You all have copies, right? Well, you do, you know, the Psalms. And Psalms 113 through 118 are sung at this time. They're called the Hallel Psalms. You know, the Hebrew word hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallel is simply praise. The Psalms of praise are taken together with the cup of praise. The fourth cup, which is raised up and praised to God. And we conclude the Passover every year by saying, Lashana haba berushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. Because you see, brothers and sisters, this Passover is not only a commemoration of a redemption in the past, but it bears with it the hope of a redemption yet to come. And therein lies the burden of my heart. For my people are waiting. They're still waiting. And they don't know of that redemption which has already come. And there is a tradition that at the Passover, Elijah himself, the forerunner of the Messiah, will come to tell us he's on his way. And so at each Passover table, there's a special place setting and a special cup. Nobody sits at this place and nobody drinks from this cup. It's Elijah's cup. And at a particular time, the head of the house will say to the youngest child, go and open the door for Elijah. And as the door is opened, we all stand together and say, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then together we sing what is the oldest Hebrew melody known today. Elijah the prophet, 
Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the Gileadite, come even in our days and bring with you Messiah, son of David. And every year my people stand, and every year they sing, and every year they wonder, is he ever going to come? Still waiting. They don't know of that one named Yohanan. You know him as John the Baptizer, who did come in the spirit of Elijah. And who one day saw a Jewish man coming up over the hill and declared, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And they don't know of that one named Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, who did come, the Lamb. And it is the burden of my heart and that of Jews for Jesus to see this message communicated in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And it's my prayer that in our being together you might not only be enriched in your understanding of God's word and of the Lord's Supper, but that you might share this burden with us. In closing, this is now my third time to see this presentation that the Lord has allowed me to see. We went to a church a long time ago after I had first gotten saved and they had it there. Then I watched it the other day as a recording online as I was preparing for this sermon. Then I watched it again today. And you know, I'm still blown away by the Passover and the way that Christ was threaded through it or represented in it since God instituted it now over 5,000 years ago. Think about it. I want you to think about this real quick in, in the closing. Although he explained how Christ was threaded in to that Passover meal, the Jews who do not believe in Jesus, mind you, they didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was having it with his disciples. Today, there are Jews that celebrate that same Passover meal just like that. The way David Brickner did it just now, they celebrate it that way today. They do not agree with David's ideals of what those particular things mean in the Passover, but... I'm blown away at the fact of the matter that the way he showed us those things, what else could those things mean? Think about the spotless lamb, number one. That was God said that spotless lamb, meaning that didn't it could have no blemish, and also a representation for sinless. That had to be, and it had to be a spotless lamb. No bones could be broken. Christ no bones were broken. They took the blood then of that spotless lamb, and then the Jews then, the Jews now to this day, but they can't do it now today but that because of that egg, because they're no longer allowed to sacrifice, but they took the blood of that spotless lamb and they put it on the doorposts and the top of their doors. I mean, I'm getting a picture here. I, I, I find it amazing how God put all these different things in there about the different cups. For instance, Jesus took the third cup, right? And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And that third cup in their Jewish tradition means the cup of redemption. I mean, and Jesus said, I come to redeem mankind. And in that Jewish culture, that cup is the cup of blessing and redemption. But yet my favorite part of all, my favorite part of all was the bread. The, and I, I'm not even going to, the afikom, and that's the one I remember. But my favorite part was the bread that was put in there in that one bag in three compartments. 
They were all together in one bag, but yet they were all separate. And how the Jews, even the non-Messianic Jews, consider that to mean unity. Jews that do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jews that do not believe that Christ is the Messiah. They still believe those three pieces of bread represent unity. And then, how in the Jewish culture now, mind you, this is non-Jesus-believing Jews who've celebrated this tradition for over 5,000 years, they take the second piece only. Not the first piece, and not the second piece. And now it just so happens that the Son is in the middle of the triune God and the Trinity. And now they take the second piece, which is called the bread of affliction. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was afflicted. For the sins of mankind. And before it's baked, you could say that what, what they do is that make sure that it has no leaven. He said that they pierce it. They pierce it. Then they bake it on a high heat and they make stripes in it. And then, so it's all rolled out. It's then pierced, baked, and it's unleavened. So it's without sin, because leaven was a representation of sin. It's pierced as Christ was pierced. Christ was without sin, and then it has stripes, and the Bible says that by his stripes we are healed, and we know that he was laid on stripes, and that was a healing, a spiritual healing that God gave to all people through Christ. So each piece is unleavened, striped, and pierced. Does that sound familiar? Then they take it from the middle section. Then they put it in a bag, a linen bag, mind you. A linen bag. Then they go and they hide that piece of bread for a time. And then somebody goes and finds it and then brings it back. Does this sound familiar? Christ was crucified on the cross. Pierced, taken down, laid in linen, laid in a tomb. And then after three days, he came back. And then it's interesting to me that the rabbis won't agree that that that, that middle piece, what, what is that? Why do they take from the middle? We, we don't know. They don't know because they refuse to admit that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And then after it's taken, after it's found, it brings it back, it's unwrapped, so it's exposed. Then it's broken and it's given to peace to people. Just like Jesus Christ was broken, his body was broken for us, for people, to make atonement for our sins. I have a question For all skeptics, I have a question. How can anyone have planned to line up what Christ went through, not by Christians, mind you. Christ went through what he did by the hands of sinners, people that did not believe in God or people that did not believe as him as the Messiah. How did they just so happen to do all those same things to Jesus exactly the way that God had the children of Israel celebrating the Passover from five to three, that hit his time, 3,000 years before Christ lived. How else could it have all lined up unless, as David said, God knew it from the beginning and God foretold it in prophecy, which is a proof of the Bible that the Bible's accurate because there's no man that could have ever written that. And even if you were going to say, well, Christians wrote that in there. Well, then how did Christians write in the Passover from 5,000 years ago today now? And how did they write in all those exact things that Jesus went through? And how did they parallel out if 
It didn't all really happen, and God didn't all make it happen so that he could reveal himself to you and reveal himself that he is the Son of God and reveal himself that Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, because that's what God longs to do to save people. Ladies and gentlemen, it's clear to me that Christ represented in the Passover, and the Passover spoke of Christ, and that he was that perfect spotless Lamb of God, that God represented back in in ancient Egypt. And then he was our perfect spotless lamb of God that, that God sent to take to the world to live, to die, to suffer, and to rise again, to offer salvation to humanity, to pay for our sins. Praise be to God. Now, with all that said from God's point of view, with all that said from God, you know, all that God did, praise him, praise be to God. I mean, he's awesome, right? And look what he did for us. What does it all mean for us today? I mean, we can only look at it from God's perspective. And yes, God did that. That's an amazing thing. And, and amazing that it all lines up. And how did it all line up? Who, who, wrote, who masterminded that from over 5,000 years ago now? It's, it's impossible. But what does that mean for us? It means nothing if we just understand it with our minds and don't ever let it penetrate our hearts. How do we let it penetrate our hearts? Well, we accept it. By faith, we say, well, yes, I don't understand it all, but wow, there's no way that that could be unless God did that, and there's no way that can be unless Christ is the one, unless Christ is that one, and so we accept his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and then we turn to God because of it, because after all, if God went through all that just to show us, then he deserves to have us. We need to turn to him and away from our sinfulness and repentance. And we need to surrender our lives to Christ Jesus, the spotless lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. How do we do this? How do we do this? We realize we're wrong. We realize that God's right and we're wrong. It's as simple as that. And then in realizing that God's right, we fall on our faces on the floor and we cry out to him, God, forgive me for I haven't believed, but wow, I have to believe now you showed it to me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I need you. And then you surrender your life to him and you start living for him. God is amazing and he's real and he loves you very, very, very much. But now that you have the truth, you have to respond to his love and his sacrifice for you. Now he wants to know if you will take his offer of relationship and salvation and come to him today. Because you can't just do, if you just do nothing with the information that you just got in the sermon, if you just do nothing and you go bury it and you just do nothing with it, then it benefits you nothing. Wisdom not applied is foolishness. Ladies and gentlemen, wisdom not applied is foolishness. We have to take the wisdom that we just gained through God, through the Holy Spirit, through this sermon, through this man David Brickner, through this testimony that God gave for over over 5,000 years ago now, and we have to apply it to our lives. And God wants you to come to him before it's too late and you die in your sins, and then God has to judge you on your sins when you stand before him instead of the sacrifice that Christ gave for you. Christ came to take that sin penalty for you so that you wouldn't have to stand before God when you died and then stand before God on your own merit because the Bible says that we're all evil because we've all sinned and none of us are perfect. 
Yet Christ, the spotless lamb who lived the perfect life, died and then rose again. He came to take away your sins. That if you come to him, and if, as David said, you allow him to enter your heart, if you allow him to sprinkle your heart with his blood, you can be clean and you can have redemption from your sins and be clean before God. But there's no other way. For Jesus said, "If remember, he cried out to God, asking God if there was another way to redeem man. God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, Lord. Please, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And then nevertheless, not my will, let your will be done. And we all know the story. We all know Christ came and then he died and he was crucified and that was it. He perished and he, was, he rose again. So Jesus did what you know, God wanted him to do. I want you please today to think about accepting his gift of abundant life now and eternal life forever because you won't regret it. If you do today or you do tomorrow or you do soon, you'll never, ever, ever regret it. God will come into your life in a powerful way and you can be saved and walk with God in a personal relationship. And he did it all for you, making the way so that he, you could. all you have to do is just accept it. All you have to do is just surrender to it. So please, would you pray with me, Lord? Would you pray with me? And let's just ask God to bless what we learned today. And, and Lord, just Jesus, thank you, dear God. Thank you so much for all the information that we learned today, Lord God. I pray, dear God, that all those listening all over the world would not just do nothing with this information, Lord. I pray, dear God, now that they have it, Lord God, I pray now that they would do something with it, Lord. I pray that they would not just know it in their minds, Lord God, but understand it with their hearts. Let it penetrate their hearts, Lord God. I pray, dear God, that they would see the evidences that you laid now over 5,000 years ago, Lord. You sent these things over 5,000 years ago, Lord, and they're still true to this day. The Jews are still celebrating this Passover meal to this very day the same way we saw David do it. But yet they don't believe, Lord. I pray that not only for the Jews, but I also pray for the, also the unbelievers in the Gentile world, Lord God. I pray, dear God, that they would accept the truth of Christ. That they would accept, Lord Jesus, your sacrifice for them. That they would realize that you are the one that God foretold of. And yet you are the one to come to redeem mankind. And there is no other way, Lord God. Nobody else came and died for the sins of the world. Not not Muhammad, not Buddha, nobody, Lord God. Nobody came and died for the sins of the world and offered their life in replacement for ours. Nobody but Jesus Christ, dear God. And I just pray, dear God, please, that because of this message, Lord, you turn hearts to you and that people would surrender to you and humble themselves and stop being prideful and surrender to you and come to you and live for you and be yours. I thank you, dear God, and I praise you, dear God, and I just ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.